0: Welcome to the Tales of American History, the Witnessing History Education Foundation podcast, educating Americans to understand the history of their country and of other countries so that they will appreciate the value of America's unique free institutions. Take a journey back through time with Kent Masterson Brown and his guests and let their storytelling transport you to the most compelling moments in American history. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org. Download our documentaries and free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Today, Kent will be speaking with historian Brian Steele Wills, the director of the Center for the Study of the Civil War Era at Kennesaw State University. Brian is the author of many books and is the biographer of George Henry Thomas and Nathan Bedford Forrest. His most recent book, from the University Press of Kansas, is called *Inglorious Passages, non Deaths in the American Civil War, a study which eminent historian Dr. Bud Robertson has called, quote, "...a major contribution to the human element so often overlooked in Civil War history." Welcome,
1: Kent and Brian. Our guest today is Brian Steele-Wills uh, from uh, Kennesaw State University in Kennesaw, Georgia. And uh, Brian, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. Well, it's good to have you. Let me, uh, let me start, uh, Brian, with uh, a little bit of your background. I think folks would be interested in knowing that. You uh, were born and raised in Southeast Virginia, as I understand. Grew up in Suffolk County, is that right?
2: Well, it's not a county. Well, it, it kind of it, it has yeah, its Suffolk. own sort yeah. of uh, yeah. versions, but uh, it's like all things in history, things change. But I uh, grew up in uh, old Nanzaman County, a beautiful okay. Indian okay. name. Okay. And then they turned it into Suffolk because uh, ultimately they merged the, the county and the town okay. uh, that it surrounded. And so it's mostly still a uh, farming community. Even today, it's, it's a, <clears throat> growing up a lot more but it's not nearly as bad as uh some counties in the uh Georgia the the, the Cobb County that I'm in now is the
1: is the fastest growing county in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, oh it's enormous. Well, I have I've, dri- I've driven through Suffolk. I mean it's the peanut country uh um, and I take it your family was in that business too. Is that right? Yeah, my dad was a peanut farmer, and my mother was a mostly
2: fourth grade teacher through her years, and uh, uh, grew up on a farm. It was a wonderful environment. Uh, uh, but I told Dad, I said, I don't think I want to try to do that for a living <laughs> because there are too many things you can't control—the weather, that's it's good or bad, and the yeah. market and yeah. everything else. <laughs> oh, I know, uh,
1: and they're always borrowing money yeah. <laughs> against the next crop. That's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. And then you went to. Uh, the University of Richmond. That's for correct. For your undergraduate degree. Yeah, I got
2: my undergraduate degree at the University of Richmond. I was a spider for, for a four spider. years. The fighting spiders. Uh, was, <laughs> yeah. And then I uh, worked for a couple of years before I came to Georgia to uh, get my MA and then mm-hmm. PhD at the University
1: of Georgia. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. And you were, uh, you, you taught at the University of Virginia at Wise Virginia. That's correct. It was originally called Clinch Valley
2: College of the University of Virginia, and then it changed its Name to University of Virginia's College at Wise, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the the people that responded in Charlottesville to that says, "Well, we don't have branches." Well, they did have a branch; it just <laughs> was kind of an unusual thing because yeah. the area is mostly coal fields region, right? And this was a way of bringing public
1: education at that level to the coal fields. Yeah, and now you're at Kennesaw State University down at Kennesaw, Georgia, and mm-hmm. you're the director of the Center for the Study of the Civil War Era. That's correct. And just so you can tell the folks about that, I mean, uh, just a little bit about the Senate.
2: When I came in in uh, 2010, that's when I was hired from Virginia, I'd had taught there for almost 30 years, and um, I came to Georgia and uh, started the sesquicentennial. And -hmm. our first program was on John Brown. Our Uh next program was uh, on the election of Abraham Lincoln. So people can say, are are you strictly civil war? Well, no, we cover everything that helps us understand what leads up to the war and everything that you could say results from it. So you could say we go from Jamestown to
1: uh, today, of course, Donald J. Trump. (laughs) And uh, you're the endowed professor uh, at the at the center well,
2: oh, there really isn't an endowment. Uh, that's one of the things we would love to do. If anybody wants to to mm-hmm. have something named after them and create it, we would be happy to talk with you. Yeah. Uh, but we uh, we are largely self sustaining. Uh, we okay. we uh, raise our own funds through. Um, Our programs, we do a lot of programs on the 23rd in just a uh, short while from when we're taping this, Mm -hmm. I will be uh, having a symposium that's our 16th annual symposium. Uh, It's on transportation in the Civil War, particularly focusing on the rails. Yeah. And uh, I'll talk about the rails. And then we have Gordon Jones from the Atlanta History Center. He's a great guy. Tom Parson from Corinth, Mississippi, uh-huh. or as they say in Mississippi, Corinth. Corinth. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so we're focusing on different themes at different times. I'm also a sitting member of the Georgia Civil War Commission. And uh, one of the things that's really nice about the commission is it can support programs like this to help bring in, again, people that might not otherwise come because they may not hear about it. So yeah, we'll have yeah. uh, young people that might come in, especially for in the summer when we do a collector's showcase. Mm-hmm. We actually have quite a number of young people that show up for that because they can see materials in a much closer fashion. Sure. And uh, they're not overwhelmed. There's sure. not 10,000 of something. they are just yeah. a handful of those items yeah. and they can range from sheet music to to weapons yeah. to uh you know, accoutrements, anything you can think of that somebody collects. Got and it gives the collector a chance to talk about their passion, right. why they collect, what they collect, and what it can tell us about this era. So Wonderful. we feel like we've got a lot of different things. Uh, we were talking uh, last night about the uh, uh, Vince Dooley, and Coach Dooley also sure. has lent his name to a program that we call the Vince Dooley Leadership Seminar. And we focus on various aspects of leadership, and we... Uh, can do Civil War topics. In fact, he said, I want you to do at least one of those that way. And we said, yes, sir, coach, we'll do that. <laughs> uh, but uh, he's always so nice, he would he's never demand man. anything. Yeah. But, uh, but we try to keep keep him happy because we, of course, want to be able to connect to our main mission of talking sure. about the, the conflict. Sure. But we talk about anything. We've, we had uh, Craig Simons come in talk about uh, World War II. And uh, uh, we've had people talk about Douglas MacArthur. I mean, if we have just different types of leadership. This year, uh-huh. we'll have Stephen Woodworth come up sure. and talk about Grant. So sure. we're very much <laughs> going to connect to the Civil War with that.
1: That's terrific. Terrific. Well, you know, you have, um, you've done... Um, a, a good number of books in your, in your career, uh, three on Nathan Bedford Forrest and, um, a biography of George Henry Thomas, one of the, the rock of Chickamauga. Um, and, uh, you've now got a book called Inglorious Passages on the non-combat deaths in the American Civil War. A very fine book, Brian, as all of yours are. And, um, uh, let, me, let me start with you um, uh, and ask, first of all, I, you know, a lot of people don't have any conception of just the sheer numbers of losses in the Civil War. And you got from 1861 to 1865, and people have thrown around figures about combat deaths, Uh, Most of them have talked about 750,000. Well, I've always felt, Brian, that that doesn't even come close. And what do you think about combat deaths? Well, you know, and if you go back to the earlier times, the number was
2: even lower than that. That's actually uh, raising the number a bit uh, just to get it closer. I'm in total agreement that that's an undercount. Uh, So many people will be killed in so many ways in combat— and yet Mm -hmm. maybe in small uh, skirmishes or out-of-the-way locations Mm -hmm. that uh, an accounting would be difficult. And you don't have to do much more than go to the cemetery and see the word unknown on uh, tombstone after tombstone after tombstone tombstone to realize how difficult it would be to pin anything down precisely, but uh, certainly uh, upwards of a million, if not more than that, uh, of people that you could account for if you really tried to sit down and do it uh, if yeah. that became your life's
1: mission right right and you know I you you run across um, uh, recounts of uh, effective strengths and um, uh, battle losses in um, uh, books like uh, Battles and Leaders of the Civil War. they always have that at the end of each uh, section on various battles and you look at a battle like Perryville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Union losses, you see them there. They're all calculated. How accurate they are, we'll never really know. But you look at the Confederate ones, and most of them don't even know. That's right. They're blank. And yet, I mean, here you have a battle that could have uh, caused some 10,000, upwards to 10,000 casualties in four hours. And um, uh, we know how much the Army of the Mississippi suffered there. But there's no count. So and you wonder how much that's repeated. So I'm with you. I I think we're probably looking at well over a million uh, battle deaths in the Civil War. Well tell me this. um, In terms of non-battle deaths, which is what we're really talking about here today, what do you think the total numbers are if, and this is pure estimation now. and if you can break them down uh, to different types, just to give people an idea of the sheer numbers we're talking about today.
2: Again, if you think uh, having combat deaths and having a difficulty in doing any accurate counting is is uh, the case, and it would be, uh, the attempt to try to do non-combat deaths and especially when you start throwing in civilians into the mix. Uh But there are civilians killed in some relationship to the war. In other words, if the war doesn't occur, those people may die anyway, but there's the likelihood that they don't catch the diseases that would have uh, run through the community. Uh, They they don't have the industrial accidents. They don't have the uh, transportation accidents that would have occurred because they're moving troops, moving material, and so forth. So when you start doing that, it's a genuine nightmare to try to figure out numbers. And remember, uh, I think the easiest thing for listeners to understand is that more people are killed from disease than from bullets, and mm-hmm. far more people are killed from disease. Right. So if you took the number that we said for for uh, uh, regular uh, combat deaths, yeah. and you started trying to take in the, it's many times more than that. Yeah. And I just say this is another way of of making it seem a little bit clearer to people that don't see scale quite the same way next time you're at your favorite football stadium of course you know i'm a georgia bulldog so we we'll go to sanford stadium but if you go to any stadium Look around you at every single person there. And, of course, they're all your friends and neighbors wearing, in this case, blue mm-hmm. uh, for Kentucky. But uh, whatever their color they're wearing, imagine that they're uh, now casualties of war one way or the other, either casualties from combat or casualties from uh, non-combat experiences. Empty the stadium, fill it back up, mm-hmm. and then imagine how many times you've got to do that to get to the numbers we're talking about. So I don't want to make a a damper on the next time you're at your football stadium unless your (laughs) team is losing, but uh, but, you know- Or the fans are obnoxious. (laughs) Or the the, the obnoxious (laughs) fans, especially the out of town fans. But uh, you know, think about that in terms of just getting some idea of just the enormity. The other thing you can do is, of course, go to these national cemeteries or the local uh, Confederate cemeteries in the South And see just the numbers of graves and the numbers. And sometimes they're mass graves where there's Mm -hmm. no way to say that there's a specific individual, but maybe a large number of individuals. Uh, We talked about uh, Perryville. uh, One of my favorite Kentucky battlefields is Mill Springs. Yes. What a nice little cemetery there Not only yeah. the National Cemetery But that little I call it The Zollicoffer Cemetery The Cemetery, cemetery And right. uh, it's just uh, My friend Ed Bars Would say that uh, where, the, <laughs> where the markers Have been put up As memorial markers When Gabriel blows his horn Nothing will happen <laughs> Because there's no one Actually buried there They're in a mass grave yeah. That's under one right. uh, uh, You know Stone right. One obelisk Correct. So Well one uh, pyramid I guess yeah. it is what it is yeah. So anyway uh, just again, there's so many ways of trying to kind of connect to just the sheer enormity of mm-hmm. of people who who paid the ultimate sacrifice, or whose lives are totally impacted by this yeah.
1: conflict. Yeah, you would yes, yeah, St- Sanford Stadium would hold about eighty thousand people, and you'd think um, uh, to reach uh, over a million. You're going to empty, fill it and empty it, what, 12, about 12 times? I mean, just imagine um, that. And that's capacity. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are just what we think uh, those deaths in battle were. That's right. And then you look at deaths by disease and you're going to fill it and empty it another many, many Maybe times. 16 times. That's right.
2: That's right.
1: So uh, this, it is positively staggering. Well, people ask, why do
2: uh, Southerners, for instance, not get over the war? Well, it has such an enormous impact. And and there are, of course, communities, regardless of where you are, north or south, that families were affected by this oh. war, and and sometimes in multiple ways. Right. And not only did you happen to maybe have an army come through, mm-hmm. but if you brought wounded or injured or, or sick back home to Illinois or to Massachusetts or to Kentucky, right. uh, what the experiences they had w- when they were struck down yep. and maybe their their illness, Then can in many ways run rampant through that community. And so you kind of become
1: a corollary uh, of a a collateral damage, as we like to say. Right, right. Well, the war is fought in their backyard Mm -hmm. and uh, through their streets and up their Mm -hmm. roads. Uh, So they are directly affected by the combat and the movement of troops. Well, they are in the South, but
2: I'm saying they are in the North, too. It's, mm-hmm. it's, the war is hard to get away from. Oh, and yeah. and if you've been in the country long enough, I realize that a lot of Americans arrived at Ellis Island or some other place mm-hmm. later on. But uh, but if you think about the families that were here, again, what, regardless of which side of Mason's and Dixon's line you're on, yeah. the war had an impact. And it's one reason that for for those families, those communities, uh, it's long-lasting. It's meaningful. Yeah.
1: yeah. You know, uh, I've often thought about the um, the losses among civilians in uh, operations, for instance, against Atlanta, uh, where they uh, uh, forced all of the citizens of Atlanta to leave. And you'd see those great uh, Barnard photographs of the railroad cars with packed bags up at the top where all those civilians are departing Atlanta. Uh, cities like uh, Columbia, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, that was torched in large measure. And you wonder the old, uh, the infirm, the real young, the babies, um, what, what happened among them in a situation like that where they're virtually taken out and sent out? We have a, a diarist here in Lexington during the war uh, lived on Gratz Park. And she, uh, um, uh, she had epilepsy, but she kept this remarkable diary on the back of her music book. <laughs> and there must be six volumes of these. But she records during the war, uh, Brian, um, endless streams of refugees coming into Lexington. And these refugees are all from Tennessee, Georgia, the place where the war is being heavily fought. And she said it was endless. And and you wonder about them. Uh, These are all nameless, but you will never really realize how much disruption there was. And and every time we see a war in modern times, we're always talking about refugees. But there were in the Civil War, in, 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 in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands and she records them coming up here disheveled uh, many sick Um, and then there's the the freed slaves as the union army penetrates deeper and deeper and they're freed and what do they do well they take to the roads and we do have records of them outside of camp nelson dying by the hundreds and there's anecdotal evidence of many more deaths and yet we have no real accounting for this until your book comes along. Mm-hmm. And um, and whereas yours is an anecdotal book, I mean, it's filled with lots of incredible anecdotes. And uh, for everyone listening, I really do encourage you to get a copy of Brian's book, Inglorious Passages. Uh, tell us some of the anecdotes, uh, uh, of Brian, that you have in this book.
2: One of the things that you do, of course, is draw on previous work that you've done. I've written a book called The War Hits Home, which is another connection uh, to the interest that I have about trying to understand the impact of this war. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was uh, raised in Suffolk, Virginia, as we've mentioned, and, and that area never saw major combat. But it saw a number of activities, including about a third of the war under Confederate control, about a third of the war under Union control, and a third of the war in no man's land. And when you talk about refugees, uh, they might be nameless to the people that watched them pass by, but they are people that people knew and people loved and people cared about and so Suffolk, some of the Suffolk refugees ended up in Petersburg. Well, you can imagine that you go to Petersburg to be safe, <laughs> and where does the war end up coming? <laughs> so you can imagine that there's no safe place. Yeah. So some of those stories that also make their way into this book are stories that I first found out about and first read about and learned about uh, all those years ago in that, and some of them relate, again, to, to uh, refugees and to others. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, uh, I guess this is not anything to do with combat or Non-combat deaths, but it has human uh, value. Uh, if you're an African American and you want to become uh, free, well, of course, moving into union lines would be the, the place that you might want to go. The only problem is sometimes you're welcome and sometimes you're not. And right. so, so uh, the person who has decided to try to, we'll say, vote for freedom with their feet, Mm -hmm. as sometimes going to encounter a picket or someone who's going to turn them away, Mm -hmm. well, that determination to be free is going to override that, and ultimately they'll wait for the change in pickets and see if the next person's (laughs) a little better. Unfortunately, some of the circumstances are not going to be as simple as that, and unfortunately nor end as happily as that. Uh, the worst that you could have had happen in that circumstance is to be turned away and have to try again uh, for a family that tried to make to make it to the coast of North Carolina to get to be to the blockading fleets where they could be freed. Um, they got in a uh, very light rowboat type of vessel and they went out and it capsized and a number of them perished yeah. in, in that zest and desire for freedom that for them ended in mixed results because some of them did survive, were plucked out of the water and saved, and others were never found, and again, never found. So we'll never have an accounting of exactly who was in the boat, what happened to each one of those, Mm -hmm. uh, because again, records, uh, the slaves themselves just don't have that many uh, diaries and letters and things that articulate that in a way that perhaps soldiers do. So with my book, I was trying to capture the range of these kinds of events that change people's lives. And it touches on almost everything you can think about. Uh, People don't think about when soldiers are marching in the heat And uh, they can uh, they can have sustenance today when when there might be a local opportunity for uh, a grocery store or a uh, a service station. But back in those days, it was if you were out on the on the march, say, into into Maryland or Pennsylvania or Kentucky or anywhere else in the heat of summer, uh, it could be overwhelming. Uh, I worked for, as a seasonal at Petersburg National Battlefield Park, wore a wool uniform. And, of course, we stayed under the out of the sun as much as we could. Uh, those those uh, uniforms are never warm enough in the winter, and they're always <laughs> awful in the summer. And, of course, you get acclimated to them. But even if you do, uh, the conditions can overwhelm you. And so some of the stories, the poignant stories are of men who simply either get overwhelmed on March or they collapse. They will never reach a battle where they can face their foe and enemy in, in battle. Uh, what they'll do is they'll die on the way. And yeah. uh, it may be that they've already had a year or two of veteran service, and yet it ends uh, ingloriously yeah. on the side of a road.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I've been working on this manuscript on George Meade at, Gettysburg is in the in the Gettysburg campaign. And uh, I recounted the advance from Frederick north toward Pennsylvania to pursue Lee. And uh, those troops were marching fifteen hours a day. Uh, Second Corps covered thirty two miles. And here are all these episodes of soldiers just dying along the roads. And one of them in the Sixth Corps, his kinsman, a cousin in the same regiment, Stayed, but got permission to stay behind to bury him, mm. and there he remains, still unknown, uh, in a grave in uh, a little town in Carroll County, uh, Maryland. So happened all the time. I mean, uh, and we can't even begin to fathom the numbers uh, of this. Um, you've you've got you've got soldiers dying on the march um you have uh soldiers dying of accidents tell us some about some of those
2: the accidents really are perplexing because we would like to think that people have a little bit more sense and sometimes they demonstrate <laughs> yeah. uh, but the uh, circumstances can be varied and and can be almost absurd at times you can you can uh, hear or read in and uh these accounts of soldiers having just not paying attention or not uh, not uh, c- taking care of details right. um, again, soldiers in the most unusual circumstances, they're doing a bayonet practice and someone gets carried away. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are throwing a weapon over in the corner of a building and the round goes through the second floor and kills someone sleeping in the in the bunk above. Uh, just almost anything you could conceive of that someone could do. Uh, we're going to have our program in uh, Kennesaw on on the 23rd about transportation, and I'm going to talk about tragedy by train. Uh, there are so many stories of someone who is either swept off of a the top of a boxcar, or they roll off of one, or they they raise their head at the wrong time, and a low bridge comes into contact with them, or they get, try to get on a moving train or try to get off a moving train, uh, and they can trip or fall or anything. And then, of course, once it happens, it happens. But boiler explosions, uh, uh, collisions, derailments, some of the most horrific stories on, on trains transportation deal with derailments. Uh, but collisions when a train is the tracks are just not clear, and one train uh careens into another, yeah. and they said it was almost one instance was almost like giants doing an arm wrestle where they're mm-hmm. there the the two trains are, are at verticals yeah and uh and of course people are caught in between the fires then uh take place and and so uh, scalding and just burning to death, almost anything you can think of that somebody could have happen to them. I should say this, and, and, you know, it's perplexing to me. I I think this is a book that there's nothing else like it out there. And I thought maybe the Civil War audience might find it a little more interesting just because of that. But my number one rating on the, 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 I won't do a program of uh, commercial program for cer- certain certain folks do. You can. well i won't well, people will know who i'm talking about if you wanted to buy the book the place you go i was number one in death as far as my you know the really? ratings not that i was number one but it was the highest rating of all of the fields all of the areas yeah. for, for my book yeah so it was number one for my book uh, in in death, and I yeah. thought that's unusual. Yeah.
1: That's an unusual place to be. Well, you know, we forget uh, in the uh, railroads in the Civil War, the only thing that kept those engineers knowing what track to go is the telegraph, mm-hmm. and it would telegraph from station to station. And if that telegraph line was down, which of course every guerrilla, every army is gonna is gonna cut those wires of the enemy uh, to prevent that kind of communication. And suddenly you got two trains on the same track.
2: Well, and it can be as simple as just displacing a rail. Yeah. So some of these may genuinely be accidents. And frankly, there are times where rain will wash out a culvert or something, and and, uh, you have uh, trestles are damaged. But as you say, a gorilla could come in, uh, take out a rail. Take out a rail. And then you don't know if that was a derailment based on the the action of the train itself or whether it was because it was deliberately
1: sabotaged. Right, right. John Hunt Morgan constantly raided the L&N Railroad. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would have his people go out there and remove remove ties, uh, uh, remove rails. Uh, It's a it's a quick a quick remedy to the problem and the next train coming down the track off he goes and
2: and um, it sows confusion and and uh, anything else uncertainty and all of the rest unfortunately for the confederacy of course the rails dilapidated during the course of the war sure. from overuse and they had no general way to to repair them i mean they might try to do some local right. things but for the most part you know they're they're left patching and trying to pray and, yeah. and <laughs> sometimes praying works and <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes you're not quite sure it's going to save you from the next disaster that might be just around the bend.
1: There, there were episodes of suicides. Uh, tell us about some of those.
2: I think they're probably some of the most tragic because you think that uh, of people in the past is strong and capable and and all of those things. And this is not to say that people that that end up being overwhelmed are not strong people. They, it's just that we have this image of them in the past as if somehow they're almost not human, mm-hmm. and yet this they are very human. And it can be from any number of things, from depression to uh, whatever, fatigue, uh, just da- down the list. But I think one of the more tragic stories I remember early in the war was a, a an officer who realized that uh, this war is going to start to make him send his neighbors, his friends, as we know, when, a, when you have a company, it's raised in your community. And these right. are people you grow up with and you know and you go to church with or you uh, eat uh, taverns with or you do pol- political events with. And now he was going to have to send these people off to war, and, and, the, and many of them were going to kill, or at least some of them were going to be killed. And hmm. he couldn't handle that, and he went out and he killed himself rather than face that. And wow. so it was a very tragic situation. There was one officer who had— uh, a real strong track record. That's why I repeat the word strong because, again, we think, well, you know, strength and weakness, that's not a question of those things. It's a question of a lot of things we don't necessarily understand, certainly at that time, that we can maybe understand better today. And yet we all know people that we don't fully understand what the circumstances they face are today. But this man took his horse, rode over to the river, got off his horse, And just walked into the river. And that was his way of dealing with whatever had overwhelmed him to the point that he didn't think he could go
1: on. Yeah. Then there were soldiers who were executed. And um, desertion, um, probably the most frequent uh, crimes committed. Um, uh, Tell us a little bit about those.
2: If you were to look at – I have a chapter on justice and and, Mm -hmm. uh, the Civil War. If you were to look at that, it's a wide-ranging chapter. It deals with everything from situations that involve prisoners and and prison camps to situations that involve um, uh, events that – frankly, you can sort of understand would lead to the deaths of someone, a murder of a fellow soldier, a rape or attack on a civilian, and so forth and so on. Yet desertion really is one of those quandaries of what to do because, of course, uh, no less a figure, for instance, than Robert E. Lee felt that it was important for the good of the army that you make sure that you don't just... Right. Write these things off. Just don't let them go by. So you have to make statements. Well, yeah. making a statement in that case means you're dealing with human beings, real people, and uh, and there are times where, frankly, you know, you almost wonder if somebody didn't ask for it or if their circumstances mm-hmm. weren't such that. They should have expected that. But Mm -hmm. there are times that it's just purely tragic. There was one circumstance in which a gentleman's wife was dying, and he went home. He got a furlough and went home to see her and to be with her at the end. And then when she passed away, he wanted to take the children and make sure that they were taken care of and accounted for when he returned to the service. And he intended and planned to return to the service. His problem was that he lingered in that process a little too long, and the furlough was, uh, had expired. And when he came back, he was accused of desertion. Mm-hmm. So here's a man who's gone home for perfectly understandable reasons, stayed there for perfectly understandable reasons, returned as he promised he would do just slightly later than he had intended. He ends up being shot for desertion. So it's one oh. of those things where you think, had it not been for the war— this man has a family he has you know a chance to continue on in life and yet the war for all intents and purposes as much as being at gettysburg or perryville or shiloh or anywhere right. else chickamauga
1: has ended his life yeah there was a great story um, sad story rather um about a soldier from kentucky just like that you've probably you probably know all about that one too um uh, I think in the 6th Kentucky Infantry, a member an Orphan Brigade who uh, went home um, uh, after, I guess it was Murfreesboro, and uh, to Glasgow, Kentucky, and um, stayed just a couple of days too long, went back, and Bragg had him shot. And um, uh, he's buried in Glasgow, at least they think. But he... Um, he that 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 killing, that shooting um, <clears throat> just caused the a rage among Kentuckians uh, who were serving in the Army of Tennessee and uh, you can see why I mean that is a that is the like yours that is just an ultimate tragedy because the kid wanted to come, he came back to the army he had every intention to come back in the army but his his mother I think was ill mm. and that's what brought him back home and then. Uh, same thing happened. Well, you've got you've got those kind of things. Um, tell us about um, uh, 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 other kinds of deaths that you ran into. Uh, there are suicides. We've we've talked about that, but there are also episodes like uh, Earl Van Dorn, <laughs> uh, General Earl Van Dorn. Give us a little everybody a little background about Earl Van Dorn.
2: Well, Earl Van Dorn was one of these real colorful individuals and uh you know the descriptions of some of these generals is is as much fun as the individuals themselves. George Pickett for instance supposedly wearing perfumed ringlets uh and and uh Earl Van Dorn was very much a ladies man and very much a a real character. And he is uh, ultimately going to be brought to his end by uh, a dalliance, we'll say it that way, so that if you're a pro-Earl Van Dorn person, you can say they're mitigating circumstances about what he may or may not have done. Or if you're an anti-Earl Van Dorn person, you say, well, he got what he deserved. You can pick whichever one you want. But uh, but he was uh, shot in the back of his head by uh, an enraged uh, uh, husband who had uh, felt like he had had taken liberties and, uh, that um, you know he deserved to be to have to answer for those, and so uh, one of those tragedies for the Civil War, in the sense that this general is not killed in a com- combat situation, but by a jealous husband who then rides off the Union lines. Again, some people would say that he knew what he was doing and did it, did it more for the Union cause than for for being an outraged husband. So yeah. you can go through the the list of those things, but. A friendly fire of all kinds results in the deaths of individuals who are, again, not brought down by opponents, but brought down by their own. Uh, comrades, right. And so, again, it can be a misidentification in a battle situation. It can be a uh, dual gone wrong or a dual mm-hmm. uh, situation. And, the, and the Trans-Mississippi, I think one of my uh, colleagues made the comment that uh, a lot of generals went out there to die <laughs> because uh, they seemed to always get into these affairs of honor. And then some of them or one or more of them would be killed in the course of those affairs of honor. Now, sometimes it doesn't work out that way and you survive. I've, uh, I guess you could laugh to see another day, but sometimes very tragically uh, the lives are lost. Um, you know, we talked about, uh, uh, some of the generals, uh, one of the famous instances in, in, in Louisville, Kentucky at the Gald House oh, yeah. is, uh, is William Bull Nelson being killed right. by Jefferson Columbus Davis and Davis, a little sort of wiry little fellow. And then big Bull Nelson who <laughs> couldn't say uh, one sentence without three curse words in it, but, uh, 360 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> he was a hefty gentleman. And I guess you figured if you're going to get into a, a situation, a fight or a ruckus with somebody, you better be armed in that situation if you're the skinny person. That's right. And so uh, and Davis uh, shoots Bull Nelson down. And again, there's outrage, but it's in the middle of a campaign. And so uh, other things cause that to go away, and Davis does not get uh, reprimanded or uh, anything done to him, and he continues to be in the service afterwards. So it's it's just one of those unusual things. In my book, The War Hits Home, that I was mentioning a little bit about southeastern Virginia, uh, Michael Corcoran, who is a fiery Irish uh, uh, general, is Irish-born general in the Union, is uh, going to kill a soldier, an officer, who confronts him on a picket line and demands the countersign. Mm -hmm. And he feels like, I'm so famous and well-known, or ought to be, and certainly I'm not somebody you ought to question, that uh, he took overwhelming offense by it and ended up shooting down this fellow officer who died of the wound. And it stirred up a rebellion. There was one of the lesser-known But really good Union generals, a guy named George Washington Getty, Mm -hmm. uh, ends up basically stepping in. Or the Union, in the face of a Confederate movement through the region, uh, when the attention really should be on other things, there was a mutiny. And there was very nearly uh, this breakup within the Union forces over this death uh, that was, again, totally uh, preventable. If, If Cooler heads had prevailed, uh, and Getty's able to get the mutiny squelched while they're still trying to figure out what to do with James Longstreet and, and the Confederates. Uh, but uh, a, year, a year or so later, Corcoran's horse falls on him and crushes him and kills him. So again, you know, horse accidents of all yeah. kinds, a broken yeah. stirrup here or a, a horse racing in camp. Uh, one chaplain is, is run down in, cha- in camp by someone that's just racing his horse through camp willy nilly and, and takes him out. So, you know, there's almost, if you can think of it, somebody had something like that happen to yeah. him.
1: Uh, I, I've often been fascinated with the uh, Bull Nelson um, <laughs> Jefferson, Davis, uh, Jefferson C. Davis um, con- confrontation in the Galt House. Of course, we still have a Galt house. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, but here's a case where, I mean, it's just a cold-blooded killing, yes. uh, in the in the lobby. And you're right. I mean, Jefferson C. Davis never comes to justice with that. Uh, But he's got powerful people with him. I mean, Oliver Morton, the governor of Indiana, is certainly going to tell the Lincoln administration, don't you dare touch that man. If you want troops out of Indiana, uh, you leave him alone. I mean, and so that's the deal. And uh, Davis goes through the war, um, you know, uh, in command. And um, old Bull Nelson uh, rests up there in Maysville. (laughs)
2: Well, you know, one thing about being a a person that not— I just want to say, uh, maybe not the most popular individual either. Oh no! Uh, So, if you're a person who's made a lot of enemies, not a whole lot of people are going to mourn if something happens. Well, that is one of the deals too, because he did—he
1: made a lot of enemies. A lot of people hated (laughs) Bull Nelson, and he got that name. uh, uh, It was well deserved. Um, Well, there, there are, there are yet others. We've got uh, deaths in prison camps. Right. Tell us a little bit about those
2: it can be anything that you can imagine from the conditions the weather the food the the exposure uh, and this can be in southern prisons can be in northern prisons uh extreme cold conditions for uh, uh men from the south that are not quite as uh, prepared for those one way or the other uh in this in the south of course andersonville is notorious but prisons all across the South suffered from shortages and all kinds of, of difficulties that uh, plagued not only the the men in the camps, right. but the guards. I mean, right. so there were times where conditions weren't much different for people outside than inside, but it, it, from disease and and malnutrition yeah. and all of those things that you'd expect to sometimes just guards doing whatever guards wanted to do. Uh, There there were rumors that sometimes it seemed as if a guard was almost going to get a promotion to another level if they shot a prisoner because they seemed to want to do it. And the deadlines that existed in places like Andersonville, if you cross that deadline, you could be struck down. Someone who simply couldn't take it anymore, it's another form of suicide. You Mm -hmm. know, you step across knowing that that might happen. Yeah. But there were places where there would be a building that you were told do not come into the window of that building. And sometimes a guard would not ask questions. And if you happened to appear in the window, they took a shot and it might result in a death. Uh, and so any, again, number of things that you could imagine might happen yeah. Yeah. Uh, for men who are really vulnerable. And a Cahaba prison, which was a, a prison that uh, had a tr- terrible habit of flooding yeah. in high water. Uh, could create, again, conditions that a man may or may not be able to, to extricate himself in Alabama. from. It's in Alabama. Yes. yes, yes. Here's Selma. And then what's worse, of course, is the terrible story of the Sultana afterwards oh. where prisoners from Andersonville and Cahaba and uh, you know had already been through enough get on a steamboat on their way home. And the steamboat is massively overburdened and overladen and, and a boiler explosion and fire and, and all kinds of things occur that uh, – that throw men into the water and cause them to, you know, have to fend for themselves if they're going to have any chance at all. And then the explosion itself, the scaldings, all those things that would happen there, that are just indicative of steamboat transportation. Uh, yeah. I don't know how and, to tell and, you. And there
1: were there were almost sixteen hundred deaths on the
2: Sultana. That's right, more than on the Titanic. So it's it's ironic that one of the things we know almost in our culture that uh, we think is one of the tragedies. And it is a tragedy uh, that uh, is an iconic tragedy yeah. of this other of tragedies. Also that scale, that type of scale.
1: We have a memorial stone here in Lexington in the old Episcopal burying ground on third street to a um, victim of the Sultana. So there was one boy from this town mm. who died on, on that. and mm. And here you have a, Finally released from prison and uh, gets as far as boarding the Sultana on the mm. Mississippi River and dies uh, in a just a horrible uh, uh, death with fire, as you say, scalding, drowning. Um, story that almost reminds you of the USS Indianapolis. In, uh, That's right. That's in, right. In uh, the Second World War. Um, uh, uh, Horrific, horrific. Uh, there, there, there. I, I, I've looked at photography of Andersonville, mm-hmm. you know, and um, you see those. You can see the latrines in the distance, and what that tells me is typhoid fever. Uh, that's what. That's your basis of typhoid fever. And then you see the hideous living conditions, the tents, just shabby tents, and you see the heat. And you can tell that there's going to be a lot of deaths in that in that place. It's like an incubation center for these things. It is. It is. And, of course, we'll never know. There's a cemetery at Andersonville. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll never know how many. And then you couple that, as you said, with uh, lack of nutrition. The supply problem in the Confederacy was horrific. I mean, they just couldn't get it even to the troops, much less to their prisoners of war. And then you get Salisbury Prison uh, in North Carolina, which is, I mean, may have more deaths in that than they did in Andersonville. Uh, But then, on the other hand, you go north and you see Johnson Island out in the Sandusky Bay on Lake Erie. And we have a burial here in Lexington of uh, one of John Hunt Morgan's regimental commanders, Roy Kluke, who was captured on the Great Raid. Uh, Being an officer, commissioned officer, he was sent to Johnson Island, which was all commissioned officers. And here you are in these frigid temperatures, and he dies of typhoid fever on New Year's Eve of 1863. And heaven knows how many on both sides.
2: Well, one of the things I did in the chapter on justice and, and that sort of thing at the end of the book is I talked about the uh, statistics that we do have mm-hmm. for many of these camps, and so I have actually uh, a, a couple of pages, in fact, mm-hmm. of statistics from Camp Douglas or sure. or you know Johnson's Island or wherever sure. it might be, and you really can at least just get again a, a sample of the ways in which um, you know just because you w- you didn't die on the battlefield did not mm-hmm. mean that the war did not uh, lead to your death. And uh, those individuals are the ones we know. And as you know, as you've just pointed out, and we all pointed out, there's so many we'll never fully know or appreciate what happened
1: to them. No, no, no. You also have uh, commentary in your book about uh, soldiers. Of course, some like on the Sultana going home. But some just going home. That's right. Who something happens.
2: Yeah, they're on furlough or they're maybe uh, didn't re-enlist even, and, and so they're going home. And again, they wouldn't be where they are without it, and, and uh, they're on a steamer. And for whatever reason, they end up not on that steamer anymore. And sometimes it can be that uh, they just stumbled off in the dark or at night. And there was one sort of poignant story of someone they think maybe, maybe even was sleepwalking. And went off. Of course, sometimes if someone got overwhelmed, I mean, you've got those paddle wheels moving on those uh, paddle wheel steamers and you can throw yourself into the paddle wheels. There were instances of that. So a deliberate uh, decision to do that. And sometimes just uh, you make a a, a sharp bend in the river and a person that was there one minute's not there the next. And by the time they realize it, it's too late to go back and find them, at least with any hope of surviving. Uh I think one of the more horrific deaths was a man who was on a boat off the coast of of, uh, the uh, Gulf Coast. And he's out with another friend. We know it because that friend survived, but he fell out of the water, and they think a shark got him. So uh, he didn't survive just a boating accident, just falling out of the boat, and uh, and they think a shark got him. But, again, you could go down the list. You know, we haven't talked about storms, but lightning Uh, uh, any kind of wind damages that knock down trees. And of course, if men are camped in the areas and the tree is struck by lightning or the tree falls, uh, there are stories of individuals, some of them who miraculously survive, and that's how we know what happened. But their comrades don't. Um, fatigue duty. If you're trying to build uh, earthen uh, fortifications, you need shoring. Mm-hmm. So you need a lot of wood. Yeah. And so you're out dropping trees. And so then these details, they're out there working and the tree starts to fall. And somebody says, timber or "Look out!" or whatever they're going to say. And somebody doesn't get out of the way. And they'll use phrases like they were mashed or crushed, but mashed is one of those words you'll see a lot. And then there's this one poor fellow, and I guess you know it's his time, because he's he's warned to get out of the way of this tree, only to then run into the direction where this tree is falling, and so he doesn't survive uh, the second tree.
1: Yeah. You know, too, uh, 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 I remember when I was working on that uh, book on the retreat from Gettysburg, um, Lee... Um, on his way back into Virginia, would have gone and basically occupied Winchester, but for the fact that because of its frequent occupation by federal troops and Confederate troops, uh, it was overrun with typhoid fever. And so he decided to stay away from Winchester, Virginia, and camp at Bunker Hill, which is right near the West Virginia, now West Virginia-Virginia border. But, I mean, here's here are civilians now mm-hmm. suffering because of the disease caused by the uh, contamination of the water system by the uh, armies that had – what? That, that poor town changed hands, what, 11 to 15 times during the war at yeah, least. Even more than that supposedly. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so there's those deaths. Uh, war is uh, it. Um... Well,
2: civilians caught in battlefield situations where, again, they're not the targets. Uh, and it can be as simple as uh, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time between skirmish lines or whatever might be happening. This one tale from Suffolk, for instance, again, is a woman that's uh, caught trying to run with her children to safety between mm-hmm. the lines, and no one knows which side's bullets were the ones that struck her down. But the next scene you have is her husband bringing her lifeless body into town, with the children trailing behind the oh. wagon. And she would not have died had it not been for the war. And, and she's of course just one example. I give examples of people in Atlanta during the siege of Atlanta that are killed. Uh, again, if a yeah. shell hits something and and uh, penetrates the house or causes some structure to collapse, and then you're in the vicinity, it may be something that you. Don't even have to be struck by the shell right. to to die right. from. Right. Uh, it it uh, Vicksburg, Vicksburg. Go down the list oh, of yeah. places oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. where civilians. Uh, one panicked civilian runs into the swamp and drowns. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and this happened for uh, people of color. That uh, you know, again, they're in same kind of circumstances. And in that case, the woman that panicked was a, a black woman who went. Running into the swamp to get away from it, and she, uh-huh. she drowned.
1: Yeah, yeah. Vicksburg, you know, your siege of forty-seven days, and you've got uh, artillery shells coming in of major size. These are mm-hmm. these are big shells coming in and exploding twenty-four hours a day. Yeah, and. Um, uh, on a civilian population, and a military population, but sure. a civilian population.
2: Well, the sure. intent is obviously military, but the collateral damage yes. is to civilians. Right. And and uh, and again, there are times where shells fall short and right. kill your own troops. Right. Uh, guns burst, tubes burst, and kill the crews. So you mm-hmm. have people that are actually serving the peace meant to intend yeah. harm on the opponent, and then it intends harm on you. Uh, so uh, it's just the way that some of these circumstances
1: went. Well, Brian, I'll tell you, it's been a fabulous time having oh, you here. Thank you so much. Uh, Brian spoke to the Kentucky Civil War Roundtable last night and was had a huge crowd, and they loved every minute of you being here. and uh, I want to thank you very much. Well, for it's a great pleasure me. for me.
2: I have to tell you though, one more thing before we close. Uh, my favorite story of this book is about the fellow who's carrying an open cask of gunpowder on his shoulder <laughs> oh, yeah. and is smoking. And you can imagine the, the the trouble that he had from that. And thank goodness nothing like that happened in my visit to to Lexington. So thank you. Thank you for your hospitality and, and You're mighty welcome,
1: Brian. And for everybody, the book is in glorious passages. Non-Combat Deaths in the American Civil War, and it's a University of Kansas publication. It's a beautiful book, and I would encourage you to go out and get one. Again, thank you. Thank you. All right.
0: Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org download our documentaries and free teacher education materials that conform to grade level education standards at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.